Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Recently, I had an opportunity to sit down with Dr. Linda LeBlanc and Dr. Amanda Karsten to talk about ethical decision-making. This topic is really important for me because I look back on my career, I think there are some decisions I made that I wish I would have made differently. And hopefully that's something that we can all do is have the ability to learn and progress over all of the iterations of the code of ethics that have come out. I'm really thankful that more and more people are spending time on ethics and that it's becoming more of a prevalent piece of our continuing education unit requirement. One of the things I think about that's changed, man, family values, individual service delivery models, play-based ABA, Ascent, all of those things are coming up more and more. And to me, those are all ethical decisions that we should be discussing and they're all ethical frameworks we should be talking about. Ethics isn't necessarily about good and bad, it's about the evolution of what's best. And I think it's really important for us to think about ethics as an umbrella structure that supports and protects good care and also creates systems of accountability. I think for that reason, I was really excited to have this conversation. I consider myself a little bit of an ethics nerd. So apologies if we kind of got into it, but for me, it was really exciting because I think this is such an important piece of our service delivery. For those of you who don't know Dr. Linda LeBlanc, she's done so many things. She's also the president and founder of LeBlanc Behavioral Consulting. She's the former editor-in-chief of the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis and has authored three books in addition to this one. Her co-author is Dr. Amanda Karsten, who is the assistant professor at Grand Valley State University. And she has also served terms on the editorial board of Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis and Behavior Analysis and Practice. I hope you learn a lot from this conversation about ethics. Linda, Amanda, thank you so much for being here. It's a joy to be here. Thanks for having us, Richie. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. I am so excited to talk about ethics, and I may be one of the few, but I think ethics is so important. And it just seems like ethics is having a moment right now. I'm seeing it more in CEUs. It's more available. Why do you think that is? Well, we're both ethics geeks, and so you can always hang out with us if you want to chitty chat yeah. about ethics. <laughs> uh, and I agree. Um, ethics is having a moment. I think um, probably multiple things contribute to that. Uh, one of them is that we have a relatively new revamp of the code, which is then leading to some new articles and textbooks. But I also think the new revamp of the code captures some important topics of conversation that have been happening um, relevant to things like diversity, equity, inclusion, and a variety of different things that um, that the conversation has been going on for a while. But now there's a framework to really talk about those things within our ethics code. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's so important that ethics continues to evolve as our field evolves. And this just, it seems like this is the the spark of the next iteration. And then we'll go through another iteration at some point. And, you know, hopefully we'll be able to keep progressing and keep up with as not just our fields change, but as the world and the, the world of behavior analysis changes. 
Absolutely agreed. And in the book, we have a chance to talk a little bit about how um, ethics is always evolving, but that really the impetus for that evolution is looking back on the ethicality of past practices and outcomes. Um, and often that process requires perspective and input from multiple different groups of stakeholders, whether that's students of behavior analysis and newly minted BCBAs or the clients and populations that we're serving or other kinds of governing entities, um, you know, changes in licensure boards and things like that, funding sources. So um, I think there's a good chance the evolution will continue. Yeah, great point, Amanda. I want to stay on that for just a second, right? Looking back at the ethicality of the past, I, I really like that idea to help us with decision-making, to help us with ethical dilemmas that we're facing now. I imagine there are pros and cons to doing that. Um, it seems a little delicate. Can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that? Well, I think it definitely can be delicate, um, like especially from a personal perspective. You know, people come into the field of behavior analysis because they care, uh, because they want to help uh, if not save the world, have a positive social impact yeah. through the application of this wonderful science. And um, when we fall short of that, when we look back collectively or as individuals and see places that we would do things differently now based on, again, knowledge that's been gained or outcomes that have become more clear, um, it's humbling. And uh, it is a delicate process, I think, but essential to continuing to move the field forward um, and to ensure, you know, humane and effective practices. Agreed. And I think one of the other things we talk a lot about in the book is that um, you can't avoid um, looking back at the history or circumstances that led to anyone's behavior. And, you know, if it's going, often we will avoid that kind of, you know, reflective introspection or even examining other people's behavior. And when we do, it produces that sinking feeling in your stomach or, or even outrage. And that can lead to judging people at earlier times because they don't behave the way that we have, that our knowledge base has evolved us to behave. And I think, so you were saying there could be pros and cons to that. I think if it's done the right way, there are only pros. Mm. There's a con of it might not feel great, but mm. <laughs> that, yeah. that's really kind of just more what you have to get through to get to the pro or advantage, which is if you do it the right way um, without judgment, blame or shame, you begin to realize that um, there have always been circumstances that people needed to operate in that could have led them to behave ethically or unethically, and that their actions that people took at an earlier time that were not considered unethical at that time, but they are considered unethical in retrospect. The only thing that we have to be focused on um, for ourselves is how we use that newfound knowledge to behave in the future. I really like that. I like that as 
as a framework, it's going to feel icky at times, but there's a lot to learn from the icky, right? I mean, I think that's so important and, and gosh, for us to be, to be able to put our own personal emotions aside and learn from choices we've made certainly, but also that others have made, I mean, that just expands our opportunities to progress, right? That's right. Sometimes it seems like we learn the most from the icky parts. <laughs> right. And there. that's certainly our opportunity to do the most good for the people that we're trying to serve or mentor. Um, if we're feeling icky, there's probably something there to learn and something that we could uh, do differently in the future to, again, make good on those commitments that we've made, uh, whether it's people with autism or students in our classes or staff. Um, in the programs and clinics where we're working. Hmm. I like that we've taken ethics and turned it from the word ethics to icky. It just, it just a funny observation. Um, I want to talk, recently you both wrote a book and I want to dive into that. Um, but not too many people start out their careers and say, my goal is to write a book on ethics. Um, so that, that maybe isn't on the list of things you thought you would be doing in your career. What are some situations that you faced that led you to writing this? And what are some things you've come across that you've said, hmm, we should share this with more people? Well, you know, I can honestly say that I never would have said that any kind of book was in my career path. I had no intention of writing a book, and yet here I am working on the fourth one. The other ones have been in the area of supervision. But in each instance, what led me to embark on writing a book was that it felt like there was a need and opportunity to speak people in our profession in a way that might be helpful um, and that might resonate with people's experiences. Um, so writing the book itself is kind of hard. I don't recommend it to anyone, <laughs> but, um, but hopefully it gives you the opportunity to make a more permanent message that's broader in scope than the other kind of publishing that I've done. Yep. Just for my part, um, I had the happy accident of being assigned to teach ethics as one of my very first responsibilities as a new faculty member um, out at Western New England University. And uh, I was up for the task and excited about it in part because as an undergraduate student, I had studied philosophy and have always just loved coming back to the big picture and back to trying to answer the question of like, what really matters? What matters in terms of our lives? What matters in terms of what we do as professionals and the contributions we try to make? What matters and how do we know if it matters? And ethics is all about that. So for me, ethics has always been this through line that connected many of my professional interests and um, and as I have had the opportunity to mentor students in some different states and, you know, moving into different kinds of roles professionally as behavior analysts, my appreciation for this topic area and its practical importance has only deepened. I think um, our ethics-related repertoires in a lot of ways 
are the cuspiest of cusps, right? They set us up for um, like well-being and impact and uh, confidence, uh, or they put us on shaky ground. Uh, so it's it's been a real privilege to focus on this area for a while before the very happy accident of, um, you know, falling into writing this book with Linda. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think for me, I um, became more interested in ethics. I, I always was kind of as a background interest among many interests, but when I uh, left the academy and became the executive director of a large human service organization, I, you know, really began to appreciate the complexities of everyday delivery of services to clients and families and schools and our responsibilities to funders and that, you know, we have been for a decade now in a circumstance where a, a growing percentage and now a majority of our workforce is relatively new to the workforce, which means a relatively fewer number of experiences to draw from with respect to you know, guiding your professional actions every day. And what I found was that most people viewed ethics as scary. And the thing, like by definition, ethics was about the unethical. And um, I really wanted to shift the organization where I worked towards viewing ethics as something that's happening every moment of every day all around you. And the vast majority of the things that are happening are appropriate and ethical and within reasonable boundaries and benefit our clients. And we don't want that to become the wallpaper that we don't notice, such that the only thing that stands out are the bad, scary things and our responses to them might lead us to avoid that. So for me, it was almost like this mission to get people thinking and talking positively about ethics. And as soon as they thought of a situation that they might not understand, you don't have to be in the middle of a dilemma in order to explore the complexities of it. And the more we um, differentially reinforce ethical behavior in each other, and the more we talk about it proactively before anything has ever gone awry, the more um, informed, the better noticer we will be, and the earlier and easier our responses will be because we likely won't be in such dire straits. And I had not really, in, I thought about like, okay, let me go find some articles that I can assign and draw on. Right. And, um, and that framework or viewpoint was not really laid out anywhere at that point. And we've begun to get a few nice articles on that. But I think our purpose in writing the book was to kind of translate that idea 
into every chapter um, to think way ahead of time, notice all the good stuff happening around you and make talking about ethics an everyday experience so that when you have to talk about ethics in a way that might have a little ick, um, it, it's it's just the 975th time you've talked about ethics, not the first or second time. Right. Yeah, I feel like for so long, ethics sort of had this bad reputation. It was almost like the dirty word, right? It was, if you ever had an ethical problem, it was a major problem and your career was in jeopardy. And that's not necessarily the case. And I, my other feeling on it was for a long time, it was a list of don't do's. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do it this way. And and it would just seem more of a, less of a guiding principle, which is what I think you're really talking about, Linda, is more about how do we use ethics as a as a moral beacon, so to speak, to help us make the right decision for where we're going and the right decision for our clients and our staff. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I like most about the most recently published ethics code is that um, for the first time, um, it's very explicitly laid out what the foundational principles of the code are. That doesn't mean that they were never there, you know, in the formation of the code and the discussions and the what goes in and what doesn't. These principles were always the underlying foundations, but now that's been made very explicit and clear and we use the framework of those foundational principles to kind of talk about the why. Um, why does this particular standard matter? And what's the benefit if we get it right? What's the risk and to whom if we get it wrong? And how can you use those foundational principles to be your early warning system. You don't have to remember all of the numbers and specific uh, items in the code, but when something feels like it might be benefiting me more than my client, beware. When something feels like it um, is privileged or exclusive, beware. You know, when something when you feel like you're going to behave away because someone's watching that you wouldn't behave when they weren't watching, beware. That speaks to integrity, benefit others, treat people with respect, dignity, um, etc. So we talked about the book a little bit. Tell us more. Tell I want to hear about the, oh man, this seems like such a daunting task. How did you sit down and actually put thoughts to paper on this? I'll just jump in and say, um, you know, Linda has kind of recapped how this positive, proactive approach to ethics was really essential to the kind of tone of the book and the approach that we wanted to take um, and that those foundational principles provided a really helpful framework for navigating not only your proactive efforts, but also uh, when possible ethical problems arise. Um, and it's tough to you know, find a rule that tells you what to do either in the code or in your professional experience that you can come back to those principles for guidance. Um, 
a second major theme that I'll just mention is it kind of circles back to where we started, but um, the importance of having approach-based repertoires when it comes to ethics. Um, and we talk about a few different approach-based repertoires and try to model them and, and you know shape them up through the book. But um, one is to be humble. Um, it's easier to deal with the icky of a potential ethical situation that you find yourself in if you have practice reminding yourself and and noticing all the ways that your perceptions are not necessarily the whole story. They're never the whole story, right? That others can help us. Others can add information and add perspective that may make a situation feel uh, much smaller than it looks at first, first blush or less dire than it seems um, in your first appraisal. So um, that's one example of an approach-based uh, strategy that's in the book, and and we include several others as well. But that was a really fun part of putting this together is sort of picking the themes and then looking for ways to carry them through the entirety of the code. Absolutely. And, you know, really started off with, um, I had the prior experience of working with the same publisher, Bill Weber of Sloan Publishing, which is a small publishing company that really does focus on publishing behavioral um, books. And um, my first supervision book was published with Bill and he's, he's just, he's wonderful and, you know, can walk you through the process of how do you take an idea or a framework and kind of put pen to paper in that systematic way for two years and keep going <laughs> cheerleading a bit when oh, you're wow. at, you know, the 14 month mark or what have you. But um, when I started thinking about it, I thought two things. Number one, I would really wish that Bill would be my publisher on this again. And number two, um, I don't want to do it by myself. I want to find a friend. And, um, you know, Amanda had also been writing the, um, for the APBA reporter, um, quite a while back, which has been relaunched. They had an ethics section and Amanda was part of the team that wrote those. And so, you know, I knew she was interested in ethics we knew each other from when I was faculty and Amanda was um, undergrad and then got her PhD um, at Western. And um, so I thought of her as a person that I deeply valued and respected and that um, that if nothing else, we'd have these great conversations, even if no book resulted from it. <laughs> um, and in fact, we have had those. And so when we first started meeting, it was just kind of, Amanda, let me bounce some ideas off of you and you respond to them. And we just captured notes real time. And, you know, the the vision of what it might look like kind of turned and twisted in good ways and became more defined. And then we created an outline of, oh, I think it's going to be three sections. The first section is really about these ideas and the framework and past reflection and taking a behavior analytic approach 
to people's behavior and ethical situations and being proactive and problem solving. And then we'd have a section that includes each of the parts of the code. And then we came up with the idea that the last third would be like getting that ethical repertoire on the roadshow. So getting into, you know, the workplace and your first job and thinking about your repertoires and what things are going to need to be at strength for you to have a chance to make the jump from academics and grad school. And I read this text to hello, real world. And, um, you know, I think that part has also been uh, really fun to write um, in terms of trying to help people recognize that there are a lot of everyday repertoires that contribute to you being able to be proactive and be positive and ethical every day. And that includes things like organization and time management. When most people, when they make mistakes, like don't provide the supervision that they should, or don't do quality programming, or say something they shouldn't be saying. Exactly. It's because they were stressed, pressured, behind, under a deadline, weren't paying attention to the details. And um, we really kind of wanted to set people up to recognize that they can build those skills. And in doing so, that's not the other thing that is behaving ethically. Um, it's how you keep yourself, you know, well clear of some of the most common things that even well-intentioned right. people um, make as mistakes. Do you feel like um, by the time people get into an ethical dilemma, it's a little bit too late? I mean, not too late for them in their careers. That's not what I mean. But like that situation, it seems like so many of them could be, if you rewind, you know, 10 minutes, so to speak, it could be avoided or there's a way around it, or you can see the the pitfalls of where they're headed. Um, Absolutely. really what you're talking about, right? Yeah, I think that's a big part of what the proactive part is. Notice even when it begins to seem a little off, even if it's not an ethical violation yet, notice precursors and notice the good stuff because sometimes your indication that something is amiss is behavior that's missing or absent when we should be seeing it. And that's hard to notice. And so um, I think part of what we hope to achieve with the book is to help people become better noticers, earlier noticers for themselves and for others, and to have repertoires for when they do notice. Don't just tell yourself, oh, it's probably nothing or think away from it. I think often we kind of, but we didn't really say it out loud to someone else or directly to ourselves. There's something here and it won't hurt for me to just look at it and observe and, and see what's happening. Um, 
Can you give us an example, either from the book or one that you've seen, that's an example of a precursor that's come up for people? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I will say that one of, I think one of the most common um, concerns that arises, like let's say in a human service organization serving individuals with autism, are what we might call um, uh, multiple relationships where there is the professional relationship, but then there are simultaneously these other relationships that are not within the domain of the professional therapeutic relationship. Perhaps it is a friendship. Perhaps it is also babysit for me. Perhaps it is I'm also your dentist, whatever it might be. Um, and, um, you know, in many circumstances, particularly with in-home programming, uh, which was uh, a portion of what we did at the agency that I um, uh, was at, you've got people who are young, who like kids, who are in someone's home, in their living room, interacting with a child. And this, the stimulus control, the stimulus conditions are very much like when they have babysat, when they have spent time with their nieces and nephews and et cetera. And so it is not unreasonable to think that those behaviors might be evoked yeah. and that you almost have to be kind of sensitized to it, made aware of it, and be actively thinking about how do I not behave in a way that's being automatically evoked? <laughs> yeah, um, I, and I think I think of it for for me early in my career, um, a friend of mine came and said, hey, I think my uh, my child has autism. And it was like, OK, great. And I didn't know, oh, gosh, how do I help them? How do I not blur the line? What do I say? What do I do? Where do I go? Um, fortunately, they didn't live close to me and I was able to point them towards some resources and those resources proved to be really helpful for them. And it, the ask was, the ask never came, but that feeling that you're describing of that pause of, oh man, where is this going to end up? You know, if they ask for this, then what do they, what happens next? And how do I say, I want to help, but I can't, I can't be your provider. Right. Um, and that's right. those things. And Amanda, the earlier... The earlier you notice and start to think through that, the less far down the path you're going to get towards a real ethics concern. But for me, importantly, what I wanted was as soon as someone had that first thought of, I'm not sure what to say, that they could immediately know someone to reach out to, that they should reach out that it's good to reach out, that someone's going to be there ready to help and praise them for thinking things through rather than there being any trouble waiting for them if yeah. they talk about it. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I'm thinking is a, a new behavior analyst who's finished school maybe a year or so ago. They've been in their practice a little bit. What's your hope for them as they have this book? What's what's your goal for them as they are facing some of these conundrums in their career? I love that question. 
Um, first and foremost, just that this book would normalize um, some of the stress and worry that they may have around practicing ethically. Uh, we've already acknowledged that even when you're doing the proactive things, in all likelihood, you will find yourself in situations where you start to notice that something is a little bit different, um, that you uh, are thinking of responding in ways that could be unfair or could be, um, you know, judgmental or kind of carrying over from other situations with the other people involved. So just to normalize that and say it's a good thing when you're noticing, um, it's a good thing that you're taking this seriously and that you wish to get better and better with respect to your ethical repertoires in much the same way that you hope to get better and better with regard to, you know, research supported interventions and really effective collaborative teaming and um, all the other typical kind of competencies that we know we'll be using day in, day out as professional behavior analysts. So I hope it normalizes some of the, you know, range of emotions that early career folks may be experiencing, but then also very importantly empowers them with, you know, some, some strategies that they can put into motion and kind of workshop until they feel fluent and they feel comfortable. Um, and, and, you know, just ready to navigate step-by-step step, to know that being in a difficult ethical situation does not, it's not going to overwhelm you because you have these skills and you can keep leaning on your community and leaning on the strategies that you know, and you will find a way. You will find a way together with um, the people you're serving and the, and the people who are there to support you. Yeah, and I agree. And I think my hope would be that, let's say someone had this assigned as their graduate text, or even they've already graduated and they want a different perspective and they get this text. My hope for them would be that the, um, the, the, the equivalence frame of it's the bad people who behave unethically so I'm scared to think I might do yeah. something unethical because then I'm a bad person, but I don't want to be a bad person. So I'm not going to reflect on my own actions. I hope that framework gets blown up and kind of replaced with a, a, a thought that any person under the, we'll call them wrong circumstances, might behave in ways that are regrettable or that are not completely consistent with our ethics code, even if they're not going to get a violation filed or what have you. And that means that we can examine and reflect on the conditions that might lead us to not to put ourselves before our clients in certain circumstances or to say or do the wrong thing. You don't have to be a bad person. You just kind of have to be a person. Yeah. And if you can predict what those circumstances are, you can do things to try to avoid those circumstances. Right, yeah, you can you can have an ethical violation and be intending to do the right thing, right? And if you can identify the circumstances, then you can avoid that decision-making altogether so then you're not even close to having an issue, yeah. Um, 
Linda, Amanda, this has been so great. I've I've learned a lot from this, but I don't want to leave without where can we find this book? Where where is it available? I want to make sure we put that here, but also in the show notes as well. Yeah, so we are still working on it, <laughs> but we're getting awfully close. So I think that the textbook in its full final form will be available at the end of the year. So if there are you know, faculty that are thinking they might want to adopt the textbook for a course, there are already, I think, uh, there's a sa- sample chapter or two uh, on sloanpublishing.com and the full text should be available by the end of the year. Um, and Amanda and I are going to begin, you know, starting to do workshops on the content of the book and talks and what have you. But um, by the end of the year, darn it, it's going to be done. It just has to be, right, Amanda? (laughs) (laughs) We have worked um, quite a while on this, so it will feel great to actually have it out in the hands of students and teachers and practitioners. Great. Well, thank you both for doing the work you're doing and for making these resources available to our community. I think, man, we only get better when we have these conversations and when the information is available. So thanks on behalf of everyone for bringing it out there. Thank you so much for having us on to talk about one of our favorite topics. I hope you learned a lot from that conversation with Dr. Linda LeBlanc and Dr. Amanda Karsten. One thing that stood out for me was that we're all gonna be faced with ethical decisions in every aspect of our lives. And the best thing for us to do is seek out feedback, course correct, and apply what we've learned as early as we can for our next decision-making. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a suggestion or other feedback, we wanna hear from you. Send us a message at our website at allautismtalk.com. Until next time, take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.